Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. In any case, I want to turn our attention to Moses, Israel's greatest leader. And I want to think about how he became this great leader. And the way today, what I'd like to share with you, the way he became such a great leader was by his failure. And you say, wait a minute, a great leader by failing? Well, the fact of the matter is, yes, the very first thing Moses does, he fails at. I love this. Because not only the very first thing, but the second, third, fourth, fifth, and who knows how many things I've always failed at. And yet somehow God tells us that he's not finished with us. We can fail. Believers do fail. We do make mistakes. We do experience consequences for them, to be sure. But the Lord in his grace doesn't give up on us because of that. And Moses is such a great example of this reality on his part. You know, Moses is such a great leader. He's made reference to over 700 times in the scriptures. And Moses is the greatest lawgiver of all time. And when we think about Moses, we ask ourselves, how did he become so great? And one of the ways he became great was by failing and facing his failure. So if you look at chapter 2, of the book of Exodus, this is where he fails. We didn't even get very far into the book of Exodus. He hasn't even gotten very old, and he already stumbles. On verse 11, one day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. He looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. It's there that he'll meet up with Jethro and Zipporah. He'll marry Jethro's daughter, Zipporah. He'll have his son. And look at verse 22. Zipporah gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The word gar, gar, garar, or gear, means to be a sojourner. And so, now, here's the thing. What is Moses doing? I think Moses is already anticipating his role as the deliverer from Israel, but his failure is in the wrong time and the wrong means of deliverance. 
God is not in this just yet. In other words, I think Moses has taken it upon himself to deliver the people, thinking that God would then enable him to deliver them. But in reality, this is not the moment in which God had called him forth to be the deliverer that he is to be. Now, why would he think he's Israel's deliverer? And one of the reasons I think he thinks this is because of his family. He was raised in a very faithful, God-fearing family. The writer to the Hebrews tells us this. He tells us in Hebrews eleven twenty three. interest of time, I won't read all the passage, but in Hebrews eleven twenty three, it says that his father and mother had such faith that they hid Moses for three months, and then they placed him in the basket, in the wicker basket, the Hebrew word there is for an ark, same thing as Noah's ark, but placed him in this little ark in order to see that he would be spared the death blows of Pharaoh. They did this by faith. Now, Jochebed and Amram were faithful individuals. Why would they go about trying to save their son this way? Think about this. First of all, Amram. You know, his name means exalted people. Am is the Hebrew word for people. Ram is the Hebrew word for exalted. You remember Avram, uh, exalted father. That's what Avram, Abraham's name means, and then it means father of many nations, exalted nations. His family must have been believers because they named their son exalted nation. Now keep in mind, the nation is Israel. Israel is in slavery for 400 years. How do you call this people who have been reduced to slavery an exalted people? You can only call them that if you believe, if you have faith, if you're in us, if you are convinced of the promises of God, that he's going to exalt his people as he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So though in slavery, Amram's family must have been a faithful family because they looked forward to the promise when the people of Israel would no longer be slaves, but would be exalted. And they saw their son and they gave their son that name to reflect on that promise. That's But why would they think their son was the deliverer? You know, this is really fascinating. If you look back in chapter 2, it says that Jochebed conceived, verse 2 of chapter 2, and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. The word translated fine in the Hebrew is the word tov which means good. I remember when I was in Hebrew school, very rarely, but on occasion, very rarely, my teacher would write after I wrote something or took a test, tov ma'od, very good. It was a rarity, but when it came, I just hung on to those words. And so, tov ma'od, very good. And so the word here is tov. They saw he was a good boy. He was an infant. How good could he be? It doesn't mean necessarily morally good. And what child is not a good-looking child? You know, every child, to every parent, is the best-looking child in the world and needs to be on the Gerber box or something, you know? And so when they see Moses and they say he was a good child, what did they mean by good? They did not mean externally good in appearance. We know that because when you get to the book of Hebrews, it says in Hebrews that they saw their child as a, and they use a Greek word, 
a little different than typical Greek words, but they said they saw their child as a beautiful child, it says in, in my translation, or a comely child, a good child. And it also occurs, the only other place this word is used, is in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen gives testimony about Moses, and he says an interesting phrase. He uses the same Greek word, aitos, but he says, aitos tophaos, which means he was good to God. He was good unto God. In other words, he was, in my translation, it says he was good in God's sight. In other words, Jochebed and Amran sensed. How they sensed it, we don't know. But somehow they sensed God's hand was on this child for good. Not only for his good, but for the good of Israel. So they saw that somehow our child is the child because that's what God had made known to them. But why would they think that? Here's another interesting thing. If these individuals, and we know they were a people of faith, they must have been thinking about when is God going to deliver us because they knew when he was going to deliver them. Because God told them when he would deliver them. In Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham, your people will be servants and slaves to another nation for 400 years, and then I will deliver you. Jochebed and Amram were faithful parents. They loved the Lord. They must have known of this prophecy, and they would have been able to calculate when they would be delivered. And when they thought about those 400 years, they said, you know, we're right in the time frame. And when their child was born, somehow God made known to them that he was a goodly child as unto God. They knew their child was the one that God would use. There are other times like this. Jeremiah told Israel we'd be slaves for 70 years unto the Babylonians, and they could have calculated when they'd be delivered. Daniel himself told us when the Messiah would be cut off from his people, 483 years after the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem. That would have been like at the time of Nehemiah, which meant if we were faithful individuals and we trusted the word of God, we could have calculated Messiah had to be here in the first century. And thus he was. And thus Amram and Jochebed could have calculated This is the time. They saw their child that God had somehow enabled them to understand this child was chosen for me. And that sets them in motion. They hid the child for three months. What parents would take their child, put them in a wicker basket overlaid with tar and pitch, and float them on the water in the hope that they would be spared? Who would do that? The reason they did that was because they knew he would be saved. How did they know? Because they knew the time and the revelation God must have given them about their son. But not only this, think of this. They told their daughter, Miriam, how old was she? Nine, ten years old? To watch the child. Who would tell their daughter to watch their child if they thought their child was going to die? That seems totally unlikely to me. I would never tell a nine-year-old, look, I want you to watch this daughter because I know I don't think she's going to make it and let me know what happens. No, they expected that somehow God was going to save their child and the reason why they sent Miriam to watch was so that they would know what, how, how God had saved them. And indeed he did. And so I can imagine Amram and Jochebed telling their son, God has a special calling on your life. God has chosen you for a very special occasion. Stay open to him. 
And that could have very well prompted Moses to take matters into his own hands rather than to wait on the plan and purpose of God so that it would come to fruition. And so at the very outset, and, if you, and when you read this passage, what does he do? He flees. Now, the writer to the Hebrews tells us he did not flee because he was afraid of Pharaoh. That seems very likely to be the case. It's not just likely, but I'm, what I mean to say is Amram and Jochebed did not fear Pharaoh and they sought to save their child. Why should their child, who is raised with such faithful people, be afraid of Pharaoh either? And so he didn't run because he was afraid of Pharaoh. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that. He did not fear the wrath of the king. So what did he fear? I think he feared his failure. I think he feared that the people would not, his own people, would not be responsive to him. And thus he feared his own sense of, I really thought I was this. I guess I'm mistaken. And he runs. And he always saw himself as a runner. Because notice when he has his firstborn son, he calls him a sojourner. We don't have our own land. Where is Moses' land? It's not Egypt, and it's not the land of Midian. It's the land of Israel. And he's sojourning outside the land, and he never enters, not until the time of Messiah, right, and the Mount of the Transfiguration. He's a sojourner his whole life. And so what do we really learn from the failure? I think on the one hand, we're all going to (laughs) fail. You know, if you're going to attempt To be perfect, you will fail. If you're not going to expect to make mistakes, you will be like Moses, running all the time because you will make mistakes and you will fail. And I will make mistakes, plenty of them, and I too will fail. But if there is a lesson to be learned, which I think Moses learns and continues to relearn along the way, it is this. Number one, that without him, we can do nothing. Moses certainly learns this, and he realizes that left to himself, he'll make the wrong decisions. Left to himself, his plans and purposes will not be fruitful. But when we follow God's plans in the power of his presence, in the power of his spirit, well, then we can be successful. In fact, Zechariah says, not by might nor by, power, uh, by strength, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Moses would learn this, and he would relearn it over time. Yeshua himself tells us this, right? He says, I am the vine, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, because without me you can do nothing. The problem is we don't really believe that. We really believe without him we can't do very much. We could do some things. But the reality is, as Yeshua has said, without me you can do nothing. And when Moses tries to utilize his own power and strength, he fails. Now, keep this in mind. I was thinking about this too. Moses, according to Stephen, chapter 7 of Acts, he was trained in all the knowledge and wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty, Stephen says, in both word and deed. So what were the things he may have learned in Egypt? He would have learned writing. Hieroglyphics are all over the place in Egypt. Writing was an important aspect of Egyptian culture and art. 
He would have learned poetry because there was much poetry in in Egypt. He would have learned a lot about mathematics and uh, architecture, right, with all the pyramids and all that kind of stuff that was being built. He would have learned a lot about science. You know, when we take a look at the mummies, we actually see that the Egyptians had dental work. They also had uh, experimented with brain surgery. So they would have had all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, Moses reflects all of those things in his writings, but not out of his own personal ability, but out of God's revelation. I was thinking about this. He had all the knowledge of architecture, but it had no bearing on the revelation he was given for the building of the tabernacle. You know, it had nothing to do with all his mathematical equations and abilities. God just told him, this is how I want it, this is what it's to look like, and he built it. Though Moses was knowledgeable in all the science and medical things, where you read the law, there's all kinds of stuff about that have a bearing on medical realities, you know, things we should eat, things we should wear, and all those things that have served to, as later science and medical science has revealed as a good thing. You know, for example, this just came to my mind, for, uh, uh, um, you know, vitamin K is instrumental in the clotting uh, uh, of blood. And, you know, vitamin K rises to its highest levels, naturally highest levels, at eight days old. And so circumcision was to be performed on the eighth day. Is there a connection? Is that one of the connections that might be there? The law doesn't say that. But the thing that's interesting to me is that in all the knowledge of science and medical stuff that Moses had in Egypt, it had no bearing on what he wrote in the law. When you think about Moses as a poet, he learned much poetry in Egypt, but when he writes his psalm, Psalm 81 or Psalm 90, I think it is, it has nothing to do with what he learned in Egypt. It's all the revelation of God. When you think about all that he learned about writing in Egypt, it has nothing whatsoever to do with all that he writes in the Scripture. It's all the revelation of God. It's almost like his whole life of his, those positive things that I've just mentioned, the revelation of God's Word, all of those things demonstrates it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And so... His failure certainly alerted him to the reality that unless the Lord is the builder of the house, we all labor in vain. That's certainly one lesson. I think a second lesson we learn is that when we do attempt to do things in our own strength and according to our own knowledge, we can do some terrible things. Moses was a murderer. I mean, that's a terrible thing, isn't it, taking somebody's life? I realize he's an Egyptian, he's a taskmaster, but he murdered him. And he knows he did wrong because the text is very clear. He looked this way and that. Why? He didn't want anyone to see. Why? Because he knew he did a wrong thing. Why did he hide him in the sand? He didn't want anyone to find out. He did a wrong thing. It's amazing to see the wrong people have done. There are consequences for them. But we have to remember, when we do things in our own strength, We can do some very terrible, terrible things, not only to ourselves, but to others. When we're not ones that consider to love our neighbor as ourselves, we could do terrible things to our neighbors. Believers do terrible things to one another. And we have to be on our guard because when we operate in our own strength, when we do things according to our own plans, our own sort of devices, our own means of thinking about things without really 
convey, uh, conversing with the Lord and with his word, we will do terrible things to one another. Paul did terrible things. You remember we're told that when he was going off to Damascus, what was he doing? He was throwing men and women into prison because of their belief in Messiah. He stood there when Stephen was being stoned. Can you just stand there and watch someone being stoned to death without raising your voice and saying, what is this? But he didn't just stand there and watch. He held their coats so that they could be free enough to throw those stones as accurately and as hard as they could. It is no wonder that Paul says he's the chief of sinners. He doesn't just say he's the chief of sinners. He says he's the least of all the apostles. He doesn't only say that. Ephesians 3.8, he says he's the least of all the saints because he knew that operating in his own strength, you can do despicable and terrible things to others. And thus, Moses did a terrible thing. David has done terrible things when he took some, another man's wife who was completely faithful to him, loyal to him, and to his soldiers and would never come off the battlefield. And when given opportunity to come home, he doesn't even want to spend the evening with his wife from whom he'd been separated. And David not only sends him to the front line so that he'd be killed, he takes his wife as well. Despicable thing that David did. A terrible thing that he did. And why? Because he sought to do what he wanted to do according to his own assessment rather than in accordance with God's ways. So we need to make sure that we operate in the power of the Lord. In our own strength, we will fail. And not only will we fail, but we will fail terribly, miserably, and we'll do hurtful things to one another. And yet the third lesson that we learn is, despite how hurtful we can be, God can still cleanse us and forgive us and use us. We may bear scars. Moses never entered the land because of his sin in striking the rock. We may bear scars and not have all the blessings that we might like to have. But God can still use us. Look how he used. Look how he used Moses, the greatest leader. All of us would say, I'm not picking that guy, you know. I'm not picking a Paul, you know. And I'm not picking a Gary Dershinsky either. But God did. God did pick them. Because we're all sinners in need of his grace. No matter how good you think you are or how bad you think you are. We are in need of his grace. And that's why Messiah came. He came because left to ourselves, we will hurt ourselves. And left to ourselves, we will hurt others. But by his strength and by his power, he can use us to do incredible things, even to make us the greatest leader Israel has ever had. And he can make you to become the greatest person you could ever be. And the greatest whatever, fill in the blank, the greatest mother, the greatest actor, the greatest musician, the greatest whatever it is that you do, if you do those things in his power and in his strength and with the notion that if we don't, terrible things 
could be afoot. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord, for your blessings and your grace to us. We thank you for Moses. He's an ordinary person, just like we are all ordinary in our own ordinary ways. And we're all sinners just like Moses. And even at the outset, we fail. And through the course of our life, we fail. And we fail miserably and terribly. And therefore, Lord, we need to learn from our failure. And might we learn that it is with you, without you we, can, we cannot do anything but fail. With you, we might experience the greatness of your strength and of your mercy and of your might. We pray, Father, that we would all be forewarned from the life of Moses and many others that if we don't devote ourselves in following you rather than our own plans, we could do some very terrible things to others. Might you spare us from that? But, Lord, we also are to be encouraged that despite our failures, you can bring about restoration, reconciliation, redemption, and success. And so it is our prayer, O Lord, that you would reach your hand of mercy down and that we would experience you and we would find you. We pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who doesn't know Messiah, that they would now experience that moment of greatest success when they are reunited to the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the creator of the universe, you, the Holy One of Israel and of all. Father, may we not be failures in at least that respect of recognizing Yeshua is Messiah and Lord, and by faith in Him, we can have life eternal. We can be forgiven of our sin. And so I pray, Lord, that by Your Spirit, You would open our hearts and minds to Your truth. You would grant us the courage and the will and the power to do Your will, which is to believe on the One whom You have sent. May you create faith in us, and may you make us alive to your goodness and kindness. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.